and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, it's game on. Campaign is here. Uh, we've got the resumption of actual political events. And in the case of the incumbent president of the United States, he's actually gone out there and uh, he's, he's resumed his rallies. We've seen him, obviously, in Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma. We've seen him uh, in Arizona out in front of those crowds. And by the way, the crowds were just tremendous. I saw a release from the uh, the RNC uh, that said that uh, his event in Tulsa attracted 20 million people, perhaps the biggest crowd ever to witness a political rally. How is he? How does he do it? It's it's absolute magic. Uh, you know, this was this is as campaign events go, what's known as uh, in in the in the science and the art is a debacle. Uh, this was I was going to say disaster, uh, but debacle disaster. Was sorry. Yeah, so yeah. The, I mean, the, first of all, there was nothing that was forcing President Trump to resume campaign activities at this time to to try to organize something. He wanted to make a statement. He wanted to make a statement that America's back, that his campaign is back. Uh, he needed the the psychological boost of a big crowd, as you know, he draws energy from these MAGA rallies, uh, and they chose a place. Um, that was frankly snake bitten from the start. Tulsa, Oklahoma, originally scheduled for Juneteenth. He pushes it back by a day. Uh, but even that created the big shadow over this event, given Tulsa's history uh, on race. Uh, but they go ahead with it. And the president and his campaign, they talk about a million RSVPs. And uh, they had set up not just the 19,000 seat arena, but also a, a massive overflow stage for the tens of thousands of people who would watch a second presidential speech outside in the heat of Oklahoma, uh, in, the, in, the, in the midst of COVID, it was going to be a statement. And it was, it said something, but not anything like what President Trump wanted it to say. A third full, uh, and he, you know, he ticked through the typical speech and, and flew back. And, and all the stories afterward are about a campaign that is now in, in further turmoil amid a whole lot of bad things uh, popping around his handling of crises and around polling. How does how does the RNC, though, put out a statement like that? I mean, this is like, you know, Spicer take two, except even more embarrassing. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, I, know, I, I, I mean, I, I mean, they, they literally did put out a, a press release saying 20 million people, you know, tuned in and, you know, what a, what a great, tremendous and wonderful. I mean, I think. I, I don't know. I mean, it's well, obviously. I guess it's the audience of one, right? I mean, it's uh, right, and it's and it's and it's often dictated directly by people close to that audience, as as I've been told in the past. Sometimes by, by very close to that audience. Very of close. One. Yeah, but why, very. As in, as in, why isn't why isn't the RNC saying anything about this? Why aren't we seeing anything about this? Why don't we know? Why aren't people pointing out these record numbers? You know, circle this and get the memo out. And uh, and yeah, it, it gets said, but it doesn't change. It doesn't change the realities of this of this event. And. Uh, you know, look, uh, Oklahoma is in the midst of uh, of record new cases, uh, as is Arizona, where the president followed up just a, a couple of days later with another event, uh, again with no mask, again with very little, if any, social distancing, uh, all to, to, to make the statement that the, the president wants to continue to make. And John, I mean, you've been covering this crisis since, since the beginning, and as you know, he has consistently tried to convey the sense that we are out of the woods, that it's not a big problem, that things are okay. Um, he he said uh, at the, the event in Tulsa that the, the numbers were only up because testing was up. So he told his people to slow the testing. I'm not even clear at this point whether he meant it or he didn't mean it. He said he was, he said the White House says it was a joke. He says he wasn't kidding. It, it was just a, from the start, all unforced error upon unforced error. There was no reason any of this had to even happen. And, and yet it, it all has developed. 
Now, the uh, the other guy, you know, he, uh, this is a presidential race, so it turns out there are two candidates. I mean, I mean, there are actually more than two candidates, but there, but there are two, you know, major party candidates. Uh, the other candidate is a former vice president of the United States, former senator from Delaware, a guy that grew up in uh, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, Joe Biden. And he's out there now. Well, I mean, he's he's out there. He is, right? Hey, by the way, before yes. we get to Biden uh, and, and, and what and what he was up to, can you just clarify something for me? When, 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 when you know, when the Trump folks and others say, you know, Biden's stuck in his basement, he's, they, they, they did let him out of the basement, right? He's not actually in the basement. Yeah, it's a metaphorical basement at this point. They've built a nice studio for him that actually has a, a ground level view of uh, of the world outside. It's still in his house in Delaware, but technically, no, it's not. I mean, I'd love it. I'd love it if he did it from the man cave, right? Like you see some Blue Hens memorabilia, some Syracuse stuff in the background, things like that. But that's not that's not quite where what we're talking about. And, and you know, like a Wayne's World kind of a thing, you right? Know, right, a little, you know, a little bit of a setup, you know. And they, but you know, and he's he he is he's gotten on a plane uh, exactly once in the last three months. It was to go to Houston for a meeting with George Floyd's family. Um, he's done a bunch of campaign events in um uh, in in Philadelphia area. Just you know, the short drive from Wilmington, so he hasn't really left the greater Delaware area, other than that 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 one trip to Houston. Um, but I think um, events like the one on Tuesday night uh, tell you that sometimes they're going to be okay with that, John. Yeah, exactly. Let let the president go. But so so here he's got he 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 brings out the big guns, right? He brings out the big guns. It, 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 I mean, Obama is um, Obama is going to be a major presence in this campaign. This is not. Yes, he will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're going to see more of him and a lot of him. I've talked to people close to the former president. He he plans to get fully engaged. You know, a lot of it is at the discretion, at the use of the of the Biden campaign. But um, this this joint fundraiser that they had, you know, raised more of eleven million dollars. Also brought in, you know, talk about big audiences. The the, the Biden campaign says one hundred seventy five thousand people donated to be able to watch this live stream. Um, you know, the, will, will you will you take that? Um, you know, not not the not the millions that watched it on Fox News, but a lot of people saw what Barack Obama had to say, and there's a lot of Democrats that are eager to continue to hear him to say it. All right, let's take a quick listen to part of what he said uh, that suggests facts don't matter. Science doesn't matter. Uh, that uh, suggests that a, a deadly disease is fake news. That sees uh, the Justice Department as simply an extension and an arm of the personal concerns of the president. Uh, that uh, actively promotes division uh, and considers some people. Uh, in this country, more real as Americans than others. Um, that we haven't seen out of the White House in a very long Good news, what makes me optimistic is the fact that um, there is a great awakening going on around the country. As, as, as you point out, I mean, Biden now, uh, from his metaphorical basement, the occasionally getting out, um, he's got... You know, he's able to tap into uh, uh, to Barack Obama. He's able to watch the implosion or the apparent implosion uh, of of the, the the Trump campaign over the last couple of weeks. Now, this is you know, it's always. I mean, <laughs> we've 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 kind of been here before, but it's a pretty dark place right now. I mean, we had a, 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 a new poll out today, Rick, that has uh, Biden with a fort. 
16 point lead um, in uh, you know nationally. We've also seen uh, polling in several of the key battleground states over the past couple of weeks that shows Biden with a less formidable but a a a, a pretty significant lead uh, in virtually every state that he needs to win to win an electoral victory. Uh, the 14 point poll is is huge. <laughs> Um, and I don't know if the race is really there, but it's not, it's not that much of an outlier. I mean, remind me where the Fox news poll was, uh, less than a week ago. I think it was 12, 12 points. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're in that ballpark, but you, you want to know who's really freaked out by these polling numbers, John, um, really chilled to the bone by the fact that, that Donald Trump has fallen as far behind as he has in these polls. Democrats. Democrats yeah. are actually more worried about these polls than Republicans. And it's not – and it, it really – very little to do with you know, don't trust the polls or just the, the, the top line of Republicans saying it's you know this fake news. The president believes that. Most Republican strategists recognize that the public polling is very strong and, uh, and, and is something of an accurate snapshot right now. But Democrats don't want complacency. And they definitely don't want to fall into the same traps that they fell into in 2016 where the polls could uh, bring a sense of – uh, lessen the stakes in any way of what the of what this election is about. They need their folks to be fired up. And I'll tell you, over in Biden campaign headquarters, well, it's it's actually empty now. So I guess the, back in the in the living rooms of all the Biden campaign operators who would otherwise be in headquarters, uh, they'd much rather this be seen as a two or three point race right now than a fourteen point race because uh, they know it's not going to last for four and a half months, and they and they also know that the real risks here of Demo- are of Democrats thinking they got this in the bag. The Fox News poll uh, from from uh, almost a week ago had some fascinating things if you if you drilled down into it, and it was grim across the board as you would expect, I guess, a twelve point top line number. Uh, but 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 a couple numbers that stuck out to me was one is do you think Donald Trump cares about people like you or not? Um, and on this, it was a twenty point margin. Yes, thirty seven percent. No. 57% in the Fox poll saying they don't think Donald Trump cares for people like them. And same question was asked, obviously, do you think Joe Biden cares about people like you or not? And there, Biden, 47% yes, 41% no. Um, so, and then and then uh, question on, do you think Donald Trump respects racial minorities? Uh, and in this poll, 21 points uh, uh, deficit on that for, for Donald Trump. Uh, 56% saying no, they do not think Donald Trump respects racial minorities, barely over a third saying they think he does. Uh, and the numbers were almost exactly uh, the reverse uh, when it came to Joe Biden. Those are, those are tough things to overcome. They're very difficult things to overcome, and, and in part, it tells you the difficulty of defining a guy who's as defined as he is. People went into the election last time already disinclined to like Hillary Clinton, and, uh, and Donald Trump piled on that and took advantage of it and, and turned her numbers way worse than they were at the start of that campaign. Joe Biden is starting where people actually kind of like the guy. Uh, I saw a smart point made by uh, by one of the reporters who's on the ground o- over in Tulsa over the weekend that um, you look around uh, that rally uh, and, and outside, there were all sorts of uh, anti-Hillary locker-up type of T-shirts and memorabilia for sale. 
but uh, but according to Dave Weigel from the Washington Post, he couldn't find a single piece of anti-Biden messaging on any of that stuff. Uh, they haven't figured out how they're going to run against the guy, and the guy is sort of liked. And uh, whether whether that's in the basement or far beyond, he starts at a higher level, and it, and it, and it's difficult to to define a guy who's been as high profile in the public realm for the last dozen years. Uh, they, they don't start with a clean slate on him, uh, and and some of the meandering messaging from the from the president about um, about how far left he is and, and, and what he would empower. And, and as he's not so subtly says, whether whether he's all there mentally, uh, all of that it has to gel into something. But you're starting with a guy that people just generally like. All right. So, Rick, uh, we, we got to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to take a, a, a deep dive or a deepish dive into Election Day. We just we just had some very interesting primaries in Kentucky, uh, in New York, in North Carolina, uh, that, uh, you know, who knows what they mean. We're still waiting for the results in, in, in two of those cases. Uh, but we're going to have uh, one of our favorite guests here on the Powerhouse Politics uh, podcast join us, Mary Bruce, uh, to take a deep dive on all of that. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Rick, we've got – this is a big moment for the Powerhouse Politics yeah. podcast because because we have a guest – that I have to say is on my list of top guests on the Powerhouse Politics podcast. I mean, right, right at the top. Do you know who I'm talking about? So much. I, I don't know who you're talking about. I have no idea, but you can. Mary Bruce, Mary Bruce of ABC News. Mary, uh, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Thank you for finally having me, John. I mean, we've been trying to book you <laughs> yeah, for weeks, yeah, yeah. for months. <laughs> Um, Trevor's been pulling his hair out. I mean, this is, this is really big, but we wanted to bring you on. Well, we, first of all, we always want to bring you on, but we wanted to bring you on, especially at this moment, because we just had, um, a series of primaries, uh, in some, some interesting places, South Carolina, New York, Kentucky, and, um, interesting results. We especially know that you spent some time, uh, exploring the, uh, the Kentucky Senate race, which, uh, we may not actually know the results of uh, for uh, God knows when, yeah. Uh, but extremely interesting race, and we know you've talked to uh, uh, to, to both of the uh, candidates for the Democratic nomination there. But before we get to that, um, I don't know where to start. Can we can we go? Can we go to South Carolina, Rick? South Carolina, the president, every Republican the president endorses wins, right? I mean, that's this is his party, ninety six percent approval rating. He loves talk. I mean, so I assume. Especially since this was a seat that was vacated by his uh, new chief of staff, uh, Mark Meadows. Uh, I mean, clearly the candidate that was endorsed by Donald Trump and Mark Meadows uh, to uh, to get the Republican nomination to run for the for that seat must have won, right? Yes, and of course, John, you know this is North Carolina where Mark Meadows represented Congress. Uh, all right, all right, all right. Can we but stop yes. doing this all <laughs> no, over no, again? No, no, we know that. We know that. But no, so this is fascinating because Mark Mark Meadows. Oh I'm, my God! I'll t- I'll I'll, t- I'll tell you what's going on here. You know, wait, Mark can, Meadows. Can, can, can we can we at least acknowledge that the president's previous chief of staff was from South Carolina? Yeah, we can. Mick Mulvaney was oh, from South okay. Carolina. That's right. Good okay. cleanup. Right. Good cleanup. Okay, thank you. Off, my lord. <laughs> So, can you so fix John. this in post? Uh, can you fix this in post? <laughs> don't, don't, fi- don't fix gonna, this in post. They're going to they're gonna make me... Don't, okay, don't you dare, right. Trevor. Don't you dare. I got so, nervous with Mary Bruce on the line. I got a little nervous. Oh, blame me. Blame me. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Go ahead, Rick. So Mark Meadows leaves Congress. It seemed that his, the timing of his 
uh, resignation, which came very late. You remember he was almost acting chief of staff while he was still in Congress. Uh, it seemed like he was trying to crowd out other, uh, other, other potential candidates to try to get uh, a friend of the family uh, into it. That person wins the first round but goes to a runoff. And uh, Linda Bennett, who was that candidate, actually loses, though, in the second round to Madison Cawthorn, who is – 24 years old. You'll know from your constitution that you have to be, you have 25, to be 25, right? To be so, he turned 25 before the election. Uh, so we're 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 good on that front. But he is a fascinating personality. He was in uh, in line to go to the U.S. Naval Academy. Had a terrible car accident. Was paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, he's been documenting his uh, his physical recovery, his training for the Paralympics, uh, and and really the inspiring story of uh, of his of his comeback. Uh, and he rides it all the way now to, uh, to being the favorite in a, in a very Republican seat in North Carolina. Uh, uh, and he says, uh, even though Donald Trump and Mark Meadows endorsed his opponent, he immediately got a call from Donald Trump. He loves Donald Trump. He says, no one is going to be more Trumpy than he is. And, uh, he could be, uh, the face of a new freshman class of Republicans. If he, if he's able to hold on to that seat this fall. And Mary, I, I imagine the Republicans will have him, uh, at virtually every press conference, a guy 25 year old of the 25 by then i mean they they, they 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 need a little new blood yeah i was gonna say the republican party could 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 use uh with a shift in demographic that's for sure it certainly would uh would help offset some of the older ages uh of those up on capitol hill but look to rick's point this is a real burn uh to, to the president and to meadows and to all of those who had you know essentially handpicked who they thought uh was gonna was gonna win i think it really shocked uh, a lot of the sort of establishment Republican Party to have uh, this young up and comer, you know, real estate investor sort of no one really heard much about uh, all of a sudden come out and, and really uh, shock. I think a lot of those who thought that, that this was really settled. And the, the other uh, the other interesting one of the other interesting primaries uh, yesterday was in the state of New York, Elliot Engel, uh, Elliot Engel, uh, powerful. Democrat from New York in the House, this, this, this facing a progressive opponent. Um, this all has echoes of uh, of, of, a, you know, of a primary we saw in New York uh, last time around. What 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 do we know? Well, this is you know a lot of people are sort of referring this to AOC 2.0 because you have this really shocking, what appears to be a shocking upset. Where it's not you know this race isn't isn't called just yet, but it does seem that Jamal Bowman is going to be uh, taking Elliot Engel. Out of, out of Congress. And it's, I think, a really surprising turn, but it in some ways is not because it shows, I think, to the establishment Democratic Party, just the power again uh, of the progressive left. Uh, Jamal Bowman, uh, you know, is a progressive. He was supported uh, by the big progressive powerhouses in the party, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And it just, I think, goes to show again a bit of a wake-up call to the Democratic Party in the same way that AOC's race was. Uh, and look, Elliot Engel has been in Congress for 31 years. He, of course, is you know the powerful chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee. This is someone who has played a really prominent role in all these investigations of the Trump administration. And now it appears uh, that he will be leaving because the party, once again, it seems is uh, opting to go, you know, for someone with a much more progressive vision for the future and someone who also ran, you know, on a similar uh, kind of message that AOC did in the sense of saying, look, he just, Jamal Bowman made the case that Elliot Engel was out of touch. Uh, and he was in recent weeks, not spending a lot of time in the district. He was back in Washington. Uh, he also had a, a, a hot mic moment that got him in a lot of uh, hot water. Uh, and, and it really just shows that I think a lot of these uh, older Democrats who've been in power uh, for a long time, uh, 
it's not always a sure thing. Okay, so the country you, is changing, you, you, right? That's the, the, there's exactly. a theme here, Mary, of the, the country changing and Congress potentially changing just to reflect that. And, and by the way, we should always point out that when, when we look at these races, um, <laughs> the overwhelming majority of the time, the, the person you expect to win wins. But this is why we this is why we're taking a look at, at this. So Elliot Engel, um, as you mentioned, uh, Mary, very powerful. You know, three decades in Congress, all of that. He also just 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 as we saw in North Carolina. Uh, Elliot Engel had the support of some very prominent mm-hmm. Democrats. Nancy yeah, and, Pelosi, and Adam Schiff, Hakeem Hillary Jeffries, Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Which, of course, is a sign that they knew that this seat was was vulnerable. When Hillary Clinton comes out and decides to, to enter in, and throw her name into a race for the first time, uh, I think that's when everyone knew that, that they had a sense uh, where this was headed. Uh, and, of course, it speaks also to the broader moment that we're in. Jamal Bowman, of course, a, a younger black man uh, coming in as we are seeing this real you know, reckoning on racism in the country. And this is something, of course, that really is playing out uh, in the race in Kentucky as well. But it's not just that you're seeing this shift to you know, more progressive uh, candidates in many of these races, but also younger, more diverse candidates. And I think you're going to continue to see that as we head uh, you know, into November as well. Okay, so let's let's move to Kentucky. Uh, this is this is the Democratic primary for the right to take on uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, a race that most Democrats would acknowledge is not a high chance of success here. But they want to they want to compete, keep it competitive enough to force McConnell uh, to spend a lot of money in his in, in his backyard and to give McConnell a scale uh, a scare. Uh, so here you have uh, uh, two Democrats competing. Um, one who raised some $40 million, $41 million. Do I have that right, Mary? $41 million. Astronomical amount of money. For, for a, at this point during a primary. Um, yeah. And we don't, again, we don't know the results. Uh, but suddenly uh, a, a, an upstart uh, comes up and, and is, you know, I mean, like I said, who knows who's going to win this one. But this is, you know, right now looks very much like, a race where we're going to be waiting for days, if not, you know, mm-hmm. a week or more uh, to have the results. What is so, I think, fascinating about this race is that just a couple of weeks ago, it seemed that this was settled. Amy McGrath, the, the former Marine fighter pilot, Amy McGrath, it, it seemed was a foregone conclusion. She had this massive fundraising power. She had been anointed essentially by the Democratic establishment. She's got Chuck Schumer out there uh, speaking up on her behalf. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is supporting her. Of course, uh, she ran in 2018, lost that seat, but they saw enough potential in her that they really wanted to, to, to push her for this for this race. And of course, you know, because this is Kentucky, they wanted to give Mitch McConnell a run for his money, quite literally, even though they didn't think that, that there's a real chance that they're going to to take McConnell out of power. I think Democrats in Washington thought if they can at least force Ms. Mitch McConnell to have to focus more on this race, to have to raise more money for this race, well, then that that's a win politically for, for Democrats. That's how this race appeared to be to be you know going a couple weeks ago, and then everything changed. The pandemic changed uh, a lot of things, and then of course uh, this push for racial equality. And all of a sudden, you have the underdog getting a lot of attention. It's Kentucky State Representative Charles Booker. He's the youngest uh, black lawmaker in the state, and he has become this fixture out at these protests. And he's really tapped into that that energy uh, in the streets of Kentucky. And of course. You know, Kentucky's an interesting sort of microcosm of all of this because 
uh, it's not just what happened in the reaction to the killing of George Floyd, but of course, Breonna Taylor in early March. They have had, uh, they have been, been, you know, dealing with the fallout from these horrific police shootings uh, for, for many, many weeks now. And, you know, speaking with, um, with Mr. Booker, he explained to me how a lot of this is really deeply personal for him. Not only does he represent uh, what he likes to say is the poorest zip code in the state, but he also has a personal connection to a lot of this. Uh, take a listen. I carry a lot of trauma. Um, I've had cousins murdered the last four years. And uh, my cousin TJ was murdered on Easter Sunday, 2016. Was really good friends with Breonna Taylor. And uh, it hurts. It hurts even right now. And uh, I've used that pain and I'm standing with them even when I got hit with tear gas myself. And, and I think it showed the people of Kentucky, that they can support me in my candidacy because they know I'm going to fight for them. And I think it's not just that he is out there kind of giving a voice uh, to, to these concerns of protesters across the state and across the country, but he also, like in New York, is a young progressive. You know, this is someone who's out there calling for a Green New Deal, pushing for Medicare for all. And so you have this kind of convergence uh, of what's being exposed by not just this you know, national reckoning on race, but also a lot of the concerns coming out of how the pandemic is disproportionately affecting uh, the black community that is really also, I think, raising a lot of uh, interest in his platform as well. And he's convinced that, you know, even though Mitch McConnell, as he says, has been in office since the year that Booker was born, he is convinced that this time around they have a chance to finally get him out of office. We'll see. And Mary, one of the things that makes this uh, so interesting, we should note that, um, that after Election Day returns, he's down in the single digits to uh, to Amy McGrath, who I want to talk about in a moment. Although we haven't seen any results at all uh, from the two largest counties, most populous counties in the state. So the thinking is he could still make up the, the gap, in, in, particularly in, in cities and counties that have uh, larger minority communities. But one of the things that makes this this race so interesting uh, is, um, as you've pointed out in your reporting, uh, this was a, a race that the Democrats um, had, had had really settled on a candidate on. Uh, and, and Amy McGrath was not even, you know, a, a, your, your run-of-the-mill person picked from obscurity. She was a star in 2018. She was an enormous presence in the 2018 cycle, one of the real kind of poster children of the, this, this wave of, of young women running for Congress, a, a former Marine fighter pilot, mother of three, who uh, came close to, to winning an upset in a House race and immediately turns around and runs for Senate. And then comes um, the, the latest events of the last couple of months, which have upended politics all over again. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by how quickly things can move. Uh, and, uh, and as and as, uh, as Charles Booker told, told you, it, it seemed like events were just kind of catching up with this election. Exactly. And, and I asked him that, you know, why has this shift happened so quickly? I think we have some of that sound, too. And, you know, just a few weeks ago, Democrats really thought they had this race planned out. What happened? Kentuckians are used to being ignored. We're used to being counted out. We're used to being written off. Uh, people talk about Kentucky. They talk at us. They tell us what we think. They tell us what we believe in. Never listen to us. I would not have wished a pandemic. I would not have wished in a million years for Brianna to lose her life. But we're doing justice by her life now. And we're doing justice by the pain we feel now. And we're fighting back. And you know, he says they're fired up and that people are finally listening and paying attention. And I think that's a message that you're hearing you know, across the country. And what's so fascinating to me about these races yesterday is that this really is this first test, right, of the political impact 
of this movement, of this kind of national moment that we are in. And, you know, we still don't know the results. And you mentioned that right now, you know, it does seem like McGrath has a, a bit of a lead. But even if she does end up winning this, I think it has been a real wake up call to the impact of this this movement and also a wake up call to the Democratic establishment that they may not have the power that they think to essentially anoint uh, some of these candidates. And the, so the what, is, what, is, what is McGrath saying? You talked to well, her as well. Yeah. And the interesting thing about McGrath, you know, uh, part of the challenge of the last few weeks for her has not just been that, you know, Booker has sort of been able to see this boost of momentum, but that she, you know, her critics point out, she kind of struggled in some ways to respond uh, to this moment. There was this kind of infamous moment at at one of the debates where she was asked, has she been out uh, in the streets joining these protests? And she kind of stumbled and she said, "Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I was, you know, spending time with my family this weekend. And she was criticized for for not kind of seeing and not being present enough at some of these protests and not sort of recognizing the magnitude of this the, this moment uh, early on. Uh, I asked her about some of that as well. Your critics say that you've struggled to respond to, to this growing movement. What do you make of that criticism? Well, look, I have been out listening to my fellow Kentuckians. Uh, I went to memorial services for uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in Central Park in Louisville. And I know that people want Uh, to tackle social injustice in this country, the racial injustice. We got got to fix this. Uh, The real inequities in opportunity, the real inequities in education. And that's why I want to go to Washington to be a voice to tackle some of these inequities and get it done. Now, of course, you know, her her critics say that she simply doesn't get it, but she's focused on on what she would do, you know, if if she makes it to Washington. And she recognizes that Booker had some momentum. Um, She recognizes, obviously, that that his life experience is is very different from hers and that he can speak to the concerns of protesters in a way that she can't. Uh, But she also recognizes, I think, that his policies are are very to the left and, and she's not necessarily... Uh, I think certain that that's a direction that, that a lot of Kentuckians want to go in. Um, she's, you know, a, much more down the middle, although she says that, you know, she's an outsider too, um, that she is not, uh, she doesn't come from from a political circle in the same kind of way that she's a, an outsider candidate as well, who can certainly uh, pick up and understand and relate to the concerns of the left. So she's not, she's not, she recognizes the power of of the left voice in Kentucky, but, but I think uh, she also... Um, you know, is focused on what she would do if and when she gets to Washington. And Mary, shades of Bernie Sanders here, because the the argument that um, that Charles Booker has been making here is that uh, you you need someone who can really fire up the base uh, and uh, and get Democrats engaged in different ways. Uh, Whereas the the establishment in Kentucky and in Washington, Amy Rath endorsed quickly by the the DSCC and Chuck Schumer and and the like, has been you got to get someone that kind of looks like your state and looks like your district. And um, the, the concern in Kentucky is... They've tried it before, literally against mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell six years ago. Uh, Allison Lundergren Grimes uh, was the was the candidate, and a lot of people were excited about it. Got a lot of national attention, and she, you know, she got blown out of that of that race. Intriguingly, she's now endorsed Booker, and so yeah. it, it kind of comes full circle. And um, the question for Democrats about whether this is a a new formula for electoral success, whether or not it's successful in Kentucky, it feels to me that. Um, these primaries are really shaking up those assumptions. And uh, whoever wins this primary and and however uh, he or she ends up faring against Mitch McConnell, there's some big lessons here about political organizing and what the power of movement politics in 2020 looks like. 
I, it is so, a wake up call, I think, for, for the Democratic Party. And, you know, McGrath, you mentioned she does have this she had this incredibly successful race in 2018. And that's part of the story here that, that I want to make sure we don't um, lose, which is that she's become, you know, a well-known figure in the state. She's been boots on the ground uh, for more than a year out there talking to Kentuckians, talking about their frustration. So, um, you know, while Booker had a late surge. Amy McGrath has been at this uh, for a while now. She was not successful in 2018. You know, that people may say that that was a sign that she wasn't a successful, uh, you know, candidate, but she certainly has become a very familiar figure um, and has been at this for quite a while now. So to, to, to both of you, as we sit here and wait for the results, and as I understand it, uh, uh, there, there's still a lot of votes uh, to be counted in, in Kentucky. Uh, Rick, for, first you, is this kind of a, uh, a precursor to what we're going to see in, in, in the fall. I mean, if it takes this long uh, to get the results uh, in a primary race for a, uh, for a Senate race uh, in Kentucky, what, what, what is this going to look like nationally? This is the new normal and everyone has to recognize it. If I could scream it into the microphone, I would, but I want to <laughs> spare our listeners. Election day is not going to provide the winner of the presidency unless it's, unless it's a landslide. Uh, there are just too many changes to the way people vote, including a vast expansion in mail-in and absentee voting. Uh, in the, that's the reason that it's taking so long is that there are way more people voting in New York and Kentucky by mail uh, and absentee than ever have before. And this will be happening for you know New York and Kentucky. I, we know where they're going to land in the presidential uh, uh, race almost certainly, but we don't know about Pennsylvania. We don't know about Wisconsin. We don't know about Michigan. Those are just three of the states that are dramatically changing the way people vote with no real way to, to handle the influx of, of voters that are coming in, plus a president who is actively trying to undermine faith in the very counting process. Uh, I, I, this is what is going to happen, and it's going to happen in big battlegrounds, and it almost certainly means that we're not going to know who the next president of the United States is when we go to bed on election night. And even people like us will stay up all night. We're still not even going to know. It's we're talking potentially days before you have enough vote in some of these big battleground states to be able to determine the presidency. That we're not used to, and we better get used to it as a country. And Rick, you and I have talked about this, but it is just so bizarre to think about. Now it is the norm that election days do not come with results. Uh, I think it's bizarre for us. It's a bizarre feeling, certainly for voters across the country. And when you think about November, I mean, part of what's so fascinating about watching this now, you know, we've, we've had a couple, you know, states now where we can see this play out. It's not just, you know, that it's a completely different reality, but that every state is different, right? So, so every state is facing different challenges, different uh, geographical issues, different, you know, systems in place. In Kentucky, they, they, they opted to dramatically scale down the number of polling places. So each county only had one, the majority of votes coming in through mail-in ballots. So it's, it's this sort of hodgepodge system and everyone is, is in the same boat, that this is new for everybody. Um, and it just, you know, the only thing that is certain is, is the unpredictability of it all. Uh, and, you know, Rick, I think you're absolutely right that to add to that, you know, the, the fact that you have the president uh, kind of undermining a, a lot of, of these processes uh, is going to make for a really wild ride on November 3rd. So I guess, Mary, we need to start resting up now uh, for election. Correct. Or we're we're going to be yes. like on because the tradition is we stay <laughs> on until there are results. So we're going to um, stay on for a couple of weeks. <laughs> great, yeah. great. This is going to be good. <laughs> I'm having a flashback to 2000. I don't know if you guys remember that presidential race. Uh, I was I was in Nashville um, at at Al Gore headquarters. Uh, <laughs> 
getting ready to, that worked out to smoothly, cover. Right? No problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was good. I eventually made it home, but uh, let me tell you. <laughs> Oh my yeah, lord! Yeah. And that'll that'll be you know that that could be a piece of cake compared to this. So yeah, yeah. Oh my god! All right. Well, Mary, we know you have to get back to work. Uh, you know, R- R- Rick and I, we you know, who knows what we'll do, but we know you have to get back <laughs> to work. So so thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Uh, the next time we come on, we'll actually ask once we have a winner in Kentucky: Is there a chance that Mitch McConnell could actually be beaten? It seems oh, every man. six years or so uh, we we raise this question. Um, I. I remember just very so. quickly. I, I remember uh, very quickly back in my CNN days. Uh, so it was probably, I mean, God knows which cycle it was. I, I, I honestly can't even remember. But I was, uh, I, I had gone and done a, you know, done a piece during because it looked like McConnell was, you know, was in danger. And I, I went to a place called Katie's uh, uh, Kentucky and mm-hmm. uh, saw him out on the campaign trail and didn't, and of course, went around with his opponent. And when I got back to uh, Washington after the election, you know, there was McConnell at some stakeout with a bunch of Republicans, and he sees me and he goes, I, "You were in Katie's, Kentucky, and you smelled blood." <laughs> <laughs> but here I am, you know. Of course, he won by a big margin, so uh, I, I didn't smell blood. That. I was just covering a race. Oh, but trust me, he remembers that. He does. Um, he does. Uh, he's he's uh, he's got a way of pulling these things out, but you never know. You never yeah, know. I don't know. He's been there for 35 years. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't hold your breath on that one, John. <laughs> All right. Thank you for uh, joining us, Mary, on Powerhouse Politics. Uh, Thanks, for, for Rick Klein and Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller, and our entire team. And it's just, it's a big, big team here at Powerhouse Politics. Thank you for joining us.